Well, it's good to be here. Again, I appreciate the invitation. It's an honor to be able to spend time with you guys. Um, and my understanding is that John's giving you, you guys all have a book yet or not? Or you're going to get one, I guess. I see heads nodding. And uh, we have limited time together, so I guess I could always say, if you want to know what I think about that, look in the book. And, uh, but, but, and it'll probably be said more clearly than I'm going to say today. But there's something about being live and being able to talk and that you can't get from just reading a book. But let me, let me very briefly orient you to the layout of this so that in the future you can look, look at it. I've, I've tried to create it um, as a resource that's pretty accessible. It's 40 individual questions related to biblical interpretation and related to the text that we interpret. So if you look through, it's, it's made so that you can just go to one question and read 10 pages and, and self-contained. You don't have to read through the whole book. So whether it's a question of, of uh, you know, question number seven, probably the most common question I get asked, what is the best English Bible translation? You know, there's no, there's no one sentence answer for that. When my wife was giving birth, the, the attending physician asked me this question, right? <laughs> right in the middle of labor. She's like, what, what, what is that best English Bible? <laughs> so we talked a little bit, you know, tried to explain it. And she's like, well, I always like the Schofield Reference Bible myself. And I was like, well, okay, I know where you're coming from. So uh, the, uh, um, but you, you can see, it ha- and then it moves on part two to what we might call general hermeneutics. And hermeneutics, many of you know that term. It's just a fancy word for interpretation. It comes from the Greek word hermeneuo, to interpret. So it answers more general questions about hermeneutics. And then the, 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 the last two sections, the third section is specific or special hermeneutics about looking at different genres. How do we interpret narrative? How do we interpret prophecy? How do we interpret the Psalms? How do we interpret the parables? Different rules and patterns that apply to different types of literature. And then the final question is issues in recent discussion. And for example, question number 39, the big buzz in interpretation now is theological interpretation of Scripture. I don't know if you've run across that, but there are all kinds of commentary sets and meetings related to that and trying to explain what some of those trends are. So I just wanted you to have a general look through that so you can think, you know, if I, I can pick up a chapter in the future and read it if I need to or find that help, helpful. What, what I did for today, though, was realizing most of you guys are going to be pastors or very involved um, ministry leaders, I wanted to kind of come at it at an angle that might be a little bit more interesting and digestible. And so I titled this section, and, and I, looking at all, that I've, all, that I, all the notes I have, I don't think there's any way I'm going to get through all of it. But we're just going to keep plodding through it and do what we can, and we'll just realize we're probably not going to get through everything. Uh, I titled this section, The Bible Says or Does It? Common Interpretive Mistakes of Pastors and Bible Teachers. And I've just listed a lot of these, and we're just going to briefly look through them and say, you know, be aware sort of as a caution sign to ourselves as pastors and ministry leaders. That's not somewhere that that I want to go. You know, we learn from the mistakes of others. The first one I, I listed was presumptive preaching, presumptive preaching. And we could say this is preaching or preparing in sin. You know, it's, it's when you're talking about interpretation, people automatically want to go to a technique or they want to go to you know, methods or whatever, but I think it's good to talk about, begin by talking about our spiritual state. And, uh, you know, I can, we can draw an analogy to this like King David. You know, King David wanted to reign as king and thought we could just brush aside this Uriah and Bathsheba stuff and just kind of keep going. And in preaching and teaching and pastoring, uh, we can't brush aside the spiritual, uh, our relationship with the Lord and our, our spiritual and moral life and think that it won't ultimately come out 
uh, and destroy our preaching and our teaching. And um, uh, this is, you know, we have many, you look in the media, many stories of prominent pastors who, who have apparently very successful public ministries, and then it comes out five or ten years later that they're, they're really rotten to the core, and, and they bring shame on themselves and shame on the gospel. Uh, in Proverbs 26, verse 24 and following, we have this principle about the Lord uh, revealing sin that is hidden. It says, A malicious man disguises himself with his lips, but in his heart he harbors deceit. Though his speech is charming, do not believe him, for seven abominations fill his heart. Verse 26, His malice may be concealed by deception, but his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. There's a German proverb. It says, The wheels of God's justice grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. You know, we, we, we always, in our timing, we don't see, we think, well, this person is, why, why doesn't, you know, God bring them to, to judgment for, for what we see sin in their lives? Well, hopefully, we're hoping for their repentance, right? But, we see, but then in God's timing, it's not always our timing, but in God's timing, He brings those things to the core. And I think it's especially dangerous for a preacher to, to have hidden and concealed sin, not only for himself, because he further is hardened in his hypocrisy, but ultimately he destroys his family and his ministry. Just a few prominent examples of, of this um, and realizing that we are all sinners and we all are, have sin, and we're going we're to talk about that. But, but thinking about public men who, 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 um, whose hidden sin resulted in an unexpected legacy. We all know, probably most of us know the name Francis Schaeffer and highly respect him as a, as a writer and as apologist. You may know his son has, has um, become Greek Orthodox, Frankie Schaeffer. And on NPR, he was interviewed about this journey, spiritual journey. And he, he talked about how his dad used to throw things at his mother. Um, some, throw, throw, some throw flower pots at his mother. And uh, his dad used to talk about how he wanted to kill himself. And uh, you think about how that affected um, Frankie Schaefer so that he's, he's obviously alienated from his, the faith he grew up in. Um, A.T. Robertson, famous scholar at Southern Seminary, one of the most, probably the most famous Southern Baptist scholar in the history of the SBC, wrote a Greek grammar this big and 50 other books. Um, his children alienated from the faith because their father was distant from them. Uh, G.E. Ladd, uh, everyone talks about the kingdom, Pre- already not yet. Everyone knows the work of G.E. Ladd, the kingdom and all that. Um, recent biography written about G.E. Ladd and talked about how he became, he was consumed with wanting the respect of the secular academy and he, he became an alcoholic and apparently was unfaithful to his wife and he, he, he didn't care for his children and they, they despised him and left the faith. And so we see how easily... Um, what appears to be a public and successful ministry, if, it, if it's not genuine and deeply um, authentic, um, can leave a horrible, horrible legacy. And, and in a, a group this size, um, you know, I don't know if there's some secret scandalous sin that's waiting to come out. But in a group this size, I know, because I know my own heart, There's the need for regular confession of resentment, regular confession of anger, regular confession of lust, so that there's a so that when we go into the pulpit, um, we're not we're not stuffing. We're not. It's not like 
like we're working and preaching with a low-grade fever. We have a, keep a short list. We, we, we're people who confess our sins to others. We're, we're, there's a genuineness and a realness about us. Um, before I'll just tell you, before I came here, uh, my family right now is under a lot of stress because of the situation in my wife's uh, extended family. And that's not an excuse, but I had been short-tempered with her and had not been encouraging to her. And, you know, before I left, I was like, it's utter hypocrisy for me not to, uh, to if, if I don't leave with my wife happy, my wife in a good state, my wife knowing I love her and that there's, there's no uh, tension between us. In fact, we read in Scripture, in 1 Peter 3, 7, we're told that our prayers are hindered. Right, Our prayers as husbands are hindered if we are harsh with our wives. And certainly our ministry is hindered if we're harsh with our wives. And, and if we have any other secret or, or hidden sins that we're seeking to, we think, well, we'll just move ahead. But we can maintain bitterness or, 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 or pride or these other things. Before I preach, I often have to get down and pray, God, um, you know, I want people to... To, to like me for my preaching. I want people to value. I want them to, you know, forgive me for seeking my own glory and not your own. There's a need to empty, to empty ourselves, to not pre- preach presumptuously. At the same time, um, there, the famous, uh, you guys know the name Martin Luther. I don't know how many of you do know, know the name Melanchthon. You guys know that? Melanchthon was Luther's right-hand man. Uh, he was uh, a younger guy, actually more skilled than Luther in Greek. But uh, Melanchthon at one point was paralyzed in his ministry. He said, I can't, uh, I can't go into, I can't do anything without sin. You know, the, the scriptures say all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. I can't preach without desiring the praise of men. I can't do anything without sin. He was paralyzed. And Luther's advice to him was sin boldly. Now, that's often taken out of context. And people think Luther was antinomian or something like that. But Luther was saying, God's grace God knows that you're a sinner and you can move forward asking his forgiveness even as you step into the pulpit and know that he will use you in, light, in, in spite of your sinfulness. So it was sin boldly but trust in God's grace more boldly was the name of it. We have to erase that in case someone just walks in the back and they'll be like, they'll be like what is this guy teaching? So we, just don't, we don't want that to be misunderstood. But um, I know that many of you maybe were coming here today expecting more technical things, but I want to start with this especially. And I think that uh, I think that we'll even just take a minute of, of moment a moment of silent silent self examination, and let's just ask God: Am I harboring resentment towards people I minister with? Am I harboring pride? Is there is there something in me um, that is standing in the way of me hearing you in the Scripture? Standing in the way of me serving you faithfully, and. Uh, uh, I'll just read a scripture to us here. It's a couple of scriptures, and then let's take a minute or two of silence. Psalm 139, verse 23 and following. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's our prayer. Lord, see if there is any offensive way in me. Also, we think of James 5.16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And uh, I don't know how well you guys know each other. I'm not going to force you to confess your sins to each other right now. But maybe if God convicts you of something, uh, you know, don't, you know, be sure to, to bring a brother into that that you can share that burden with. Let's take a minute or two just silently to pray.
Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would search our hearts. God, we do not want to put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel. Through our inconsistency or our hypocrisy, through our failure, we know that all our righteous deeds are filthy rags before you. And Father, we pray that we, you would give us a humility that would willingly admit our sin and that we would willingly magnify the sufficiency and righteousness of Christ all the more because of that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Another, another problem with preaching, and these kind of overlap a little bit, is prayerless preaching, right? Prayerless preaching. John Piper, I hear that John Piper doesn't actually tweet, right? He doesn't actually Twitter, use tweet, Twitter, but someone Twitters his comments for him. And one of the comments that was Twittered recently or tweeted recently was that on the day of judgment, Twitter and Facebook will be an indictment against us for our prayerlessness. <laughs> you had time to do Twitter and Facebook or these social media, but where was your prayer life? D.A. Carson, I think this is a good picture of what prayer, prayer is like for too oftentimes in, in, in preparing to preach and teach. D.A. Carson said we're like naughty children who run up to other people's doorbells and ring them and run away before they answer. That our prayer is like that. That we're so rushed in our prayer. God bless this. I'm doing this. Boom. We run on. And I, 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 uh, I, I think that very helpful is to look at Psalm 119 as, an, as a prescription for the way that we approach Scripture. Psalm 119 is, a, is, a, is a, all about the Word of God. And, it, and Martin Luther actually wrote a very famous work on this. Um, it, it was the, in the preface to the Wittenberg edition of his German writings. And he noted how Psalm 119 is divided into three different things. He used the Latin terms. He said it was divided into oratio, prayer, meditatio, te- meditation, and tentatio, trial. We'll talk more about that later. But he noted how a third of the psalm, which is 176 verses, is devoted to prayer. That the psalmist, when we approach Scripture, we don't approach haphazardly. We don't approach irreverently. But over and over again, David calls out, Oh, that, you know, just some examples. Psalm 119.5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Let me not wander from your commands. Teach me your statutes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Uh, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it. Lead me in the path of your commandments. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Over and over again, we have these, uh, God... Orient me to you and your word, to hear your word, to understand it. My, my inclination is to twist your word. My inclination is to misunderstand your word. My inclination is to not understand your word. And so just, just recognizing that all faithful preaching and teaching begins in that sense of dependence and that sense of calling out to God for the assistance and to, to correct uh, our, 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 our tendency to, uh, to twist his word. If, if you know uh, the systematic in systematic theology or in theological categories, we talk about the total depravity of humanity, and sometimes this is misunderstood. People think, well, people aren't all all that bad, you know. They people aren't, and they think total depravity means everyone is is evil as they can be, and that's not what total depravity means. Total depravity means every element of the human person is affected by sin, right? Your will, your intellect your emotions, the totality of the human person is depraved, is affected by sin. And I think sometimes the way, 
we approach the scriptures denies total depravity. People, people sort of think, well, but my mind is rational, you know, and I can read and study and think, and, and it's, but, but our mind twists uh, the scriptures. Our mind is not naturally, our, even our reason is. And so we're denying that noetic means mind. So many ways, a rationalistic approach to scripture without sufficient attention to prayer, without sufficient attention to our our relationship with the Lord is, is in some sense a denial of the doctrine of total depravity and the way, that our, the way that our thinking is affected by the fall. As well, we see this model, and this is the model that's given to us in the New Testament. We look in the book of Acts, a famous episode in Acts chapter 6, where, the, where uh, they're trying to decide how we're going to deal with this dispute about the Hellenistic widows who are, who are not getting proper food. And the apostles say we can't be attract, distracted from the most important things, you guys know the passage well, 6-4. We will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. That those were the apostles were like, when it comes to top priorities, what do we have? We have prayer and we have ministry of the word. Those were those came side by side by side. And I, we're we're interviewing el, elder elder candidates at our church. We're raising up lots of new elders. And even among the godliest men in my church, I'm always I'm struck and I'm personally self-convicted by the lack of prayer that we have, you know, where someone can be a really active and you're like, well, tell me about your prayer life. You know, really, uh, how many minutes a day do you pray? Well, maybe 10. You're like, wow, you know, is that, is that, the, is that the stalwart, the godliest men in our church are praying 10 minutes a day? You know, is that, is that really demonstrate, what does that really say about our state of dependence and our state of, 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 of intimacy with the Lord when, when, our, when we're so rushed and, and D.A. Carson, I have to recommend a book. This is the best book I've ever read on prayer. So I don't, has anyone here ever read A Call to Spiritual Reformation? It's a fantastic book. Okay, so highly recommend it. Call to Spiritual Reformation. Something that you can uh, take your church through as well, it's, uh, or take a small group through. And uh, it based, the majority of the book looks at Paul's prayers as models for our prayers. So it's, it, it says, what do you pray for? That's what you value. People getting well, blessing the church. You know, like, it's like, what did Paul pray for? <laughs> and you look at his prayers, and he prayed for the people's love to grow and for them to, their faith to increase and for their, them to, this, the, the God, to the, what God was doing in their life to, to come to fruition and that they would be able to, the the good good things he was prompting them to do they would be able to bring for they would live worthy of the gospel they've been called. and so but Carson in this book he speaks he challenges pastors and he says don't don't you know we're all busy but prayer takes priority over so if you're in a small church and no one else is doing the bulletin and that's taking an hour or two every week he's like you don't need a bulletin you know you need to pray <laughs> so he's like it's time to do that hard assessment and prioritize and be like. If, if nothing else gets done, if I, I just tell people, I'm sorry, I can't answer your emails. I'm, I have to pray or I have to, you know, there's, there's a, there comes hard priorities that, that come down. That, that through, our, through our prayer, our lack of prayer, we're really showing ultimately um, what we value and what we depend on. And for myself, just my own personal practice of when I begin to prepare a sermon and I feel empty and I don't know what to pray, I go to Psalm 119 and I'll just pray, I'll pray those Petitions. I'll just scan through and I'll say, God, open my eyes. I feel like if I pray scripture, I can't go wrong with that. Open my eyes. Turn my heart away from, from you know, foolish things. 
and, and use that as a model. In fact, you guys may know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you know, famous German theologian. He, he was martyred in the Second World War. He, he uh, in his secret seminary that he had, he, he had the incoming students memorize Psalm 119, all 176 verses of that. Is, is, this is the way we approach the scriptures. You know, in prayer, we meditate on them. And then we'll, we'll talk about that, that trial one as well. But I've always wondered how that would affect matriculation at Southern Seminary if we uh, required incoming students to memorize 176 verse psalm. The um, next week we can say uh, Sanka sermons, okay? And I, I shared with you Sanka is of course a really low quality instant coffee. And uh, I told you guys in Louisville, people really love coffee. My wife is a coffee snob. I say that in love. You know, she has the, she likes, she appreciates fine coffee. It has to be made the right way with a French press. It has to be made slowly and so on. And I, I can think that we can compare that with fine, delicately, properly made coffee and then the sort of instant sermon, you know, where we're, the difference is where we're, are we mastered by the Word of God? Or are we seeking to quickly master the Word of God? Are we coming with, are we, are we thinking that, you know, we've been in the ministry for a while, so now I can prepare my sermon really fast. You know, I only take two or three hours as opposed to ten hours or whatever. And I think there's, a, again, sort of a, a mastering of the text rather than being mastered of the text that can be dangerous there. I have, have the extreme of this, a quote from the Courier-Journal. There was an article, uh, this fits in with your stereotypes of Kentucky, and it, the article was entitled, Preachers Rethink Merits of Education. College attendance no longer seen as a sign of weak faith. Okay, that was the name of the article. And um, they interview this old pastor in this, in this article. And uh, he said, this is what his, uh, his response is. He, he says, Adkins, age 72, says he has never stepped into the pulpit with a prepared sermon in his 46 years as a minister. And when I read that, I thought, I bet the people in his church know that too. <laughs> I bet the ones reading this article are like, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and he says, I have found that to try to study up a message just don't work, he said. I just turned my heart over to the Lord. And, uh, you know, I think some, some pastors uh, take the, uh, in Mark 13, um, these words as the words about preparing a sermon. Do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. But if you look in the context, that's about if you're arrested, right? And you're giving testimony in trial. That's not about preaching a sermon, right? We, we know from 2 Timothy uh, 2.15 and elsewhere, we're, we're exhorted to, to diligently prepare, to study, to show ourselves approved that the that, that one of the main duties of a pastor is the ministry of the word and prayer to faithfully study and prepare. And so we're not just rushing. We're not, this is not an afterthought. This is not, as one, pa- one colleague told me, Saturday night fever, where you know you got the Saturday night fever because you got to have the sermon tomorrow morning. It's, it's learning to discipline ourselves so that we're preparing at the beginning of each week and we have all week to meditate and think and prepare throughout the moments of the day as we're preparing for that teaching or for that sermon. Having said that, just a footnote, there's always those crisis, there's always those crisis situations where you don't have time to prepare, and then we rely on God's supernatural grace. But to, to rely on that normally is, um, is uh, presumptuous. 
Okay, we're going to get to more technical things here in a moment. Leftovers reheated or reheated leftovers, right? Just again, this is tying in with the, the danger of approaching our pastoring and teaching haphazardly with our teaching being something that's just sort of reheated. And uh, I think the average tenure of a pastor in a Southern Baptist church is, is about three years or something like that. So it's very easy, isn't it, to get a file of sermons and then you move to a new church and you think, well, I don't have to prepare a sermon for a while. I can just work off these files. And if you've ever had reheated leftovers, some of them are good, like pizza, but if you have reheated scrambled eggs or something like that, it's not very good. And if your people in your church, if there's not a freshness because we're soaking in the Word and we, we know the Word and it, it's real in our own lives. And we're apply, if we're just picking up something that was real three years ago and trying to instantly broadcast that again, that comes through. That's not, it's not real and people, people see that. I've actually, as I was thinking about this, I was remembering an incident where I was asked to go preach at a church just, just to fill in the pulpit one week. And I, I, I agreed to do it. And uh, I just basically yanked a sermon out of a file and thought, well, I'll preach this and this was good. I'll just do this there. And I really felt the sense that I was engaging in ministerial malpractice as I was preaching. You know, I thought what these people, you know, need and what I'm doing here today, I, I had to repent of, of my lack of uh, sufficient spiritual preparation and concern and the reality of that message coming through me. Plagiarized preaching. Okay. After this, we'll get a little more technical sermonizing. Uh, this could also be a subset of presumptive preaching because it's, it's a form of stealing, right? It pres- all kind of shocking statistics about plagiarized preaching, how many, how many sermons are being downloaded off the Internet or being printed off the Internet and being re-preached. And, but this, this strikes me more anecdotally because I have, I have students who come to me. I had a student last semester. I was teaching in Nashville. He came to me and he said... Um, my my preacher, pastor last week preached a sermon that I know was this other guy preached on the internet because I heard it. It was word, you know, this exact same sermon. What do I do? And uh, I said, well, you you should go and talk to him, you know, and ask him, <laughs> you know, confront him. And he's like, it's too hard, you know. I don't. I'm afraid to do that. Um, or uh, I think of a colleague who visited a church in Louisville as they were looking, they moved there and looking for a church home, and he heard the person preach word for word a sermon that he had heard a famous preacher preach, and it had an illustration about being in the beach, and the guy went up, being a lifeguard at the beach, and he went up to him afterwards and said, where were you a lifeguard at the beach? And the guy, I th- you know, I thought you grew up in Kentucky or whatever. And he said, I said the beach, I mean, I'm in at the pool. So rather than admitting that he was preaching someone else's stories as his own, he just covered it up with another lie. So, um, you know, we, we all, as someone said, we're all midgets standing on the shoulders of giants. Anything that we see, we see because of the faithfulness of those who've gone before us. But there's a great danger, isn't there, if we're not careful. If we're dependent on someone else, we want to give proper credit for that. If we have if we have if we have been too dependent on others and we we haven't been doing our own homework, we've been relying on others. We need to confess that, we need to repent of that, and we need to to be people who are ourselves who are diligently in the Word, faithfully doing that. We can we can unfortunately in 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 the church there's not there's not a whole lot of recourse where this happens and and. Um, people are able to get away with it for a long time. Whereas in academia, I'm in academia, you, you can lose your job very easily with plagiarism. 
and uh, and you you are people. An accusation comes against you. You're actually brought before a faculty committee, and you 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 can be you can be censured or lose your position. But but there's not that accountability for pastors. And and again, it just it it's not wrong to learn from and even say you're 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 dependent upon others. But we're we're where there's not the careful study and the reality that's coming out through the preaching, then there's, um, there's a sickness there, I think, and there's a dishonesty. Sermonizing. I'd say for, for most, you know, this is one of the greatest dangers, it seems to me, in, in for evangelical pastors. is something I call sermonizing. I'm getting this language from Verkler, who wrote a book on hermeneutics. He calls it sermonizing. And it's, he distinguishes it from expository preaching. Expository preaching comes to a text and seeks to understand the historical and cultural context of that text and seeks to faithfully convey the inspired author's meaning, right? You have the inspired author's meaning, seeks to faithfully convey that and apply that. Sermonizing has an idea uh, that they thinks needs to be conveyed and is often haphazardly attached onto a text or the text doesn't really flow out of the text. It may even be a good idea. But it's not an idea that faithfully, faithfully and compellingly flows out of that text. I'll give you a sermon example and then a, a Bible teaching example. Sermon example we mentioned the last night in uh, if you were in the the Bible study teachers training. But recently I heard a sermon by a very prominent Southern Baptist pastor. This is all being recorded, so we're trying to leave out names. Prominent Southern Baptist pastor who preached on the necessity of the Spirit in ministry. And he said many good things. But one of his points was, you know, uh, was talking about if you make decisions without the Spirit, um, you're headed for error. Okay? And, and we would say, yeah, we, we need to be led by the Spirit. It's hard for me not to believe that he thought of that point and then he found this text. <laughs> you know, I don't know the process that happened, but this text doesn't teach that, right? He, he went to Acts chapter 1 and he talked about... Uh, Matthias being chosen to replace Judas, he says this was a mistake. You know, look at this mistake. The disciples, apostles made a mistake because they weren't led by the Spirit. They didn't wait for the Spirit to come. You know, and, and you say, well, when I read the book of Acts, I don't see, you know, anywhere Luke indicating that that was a mistake. He speaks about them uh, searching the scriptures, about them praying, about seeking the Lord's confirmation. Everything seems to indicate that he thought that what they did was good and fine. In fact, that was a model of, of and, 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 and it was appropriate for the, the reconstituted Israel, the 12 uh, followers of Jesus who symbolized the new Israel to be in place before the falling of the Spirit came. As, you know, before this happened, they were, they were just obeying Jesus' command to wait in, wait in Jerusalem until, until the Spirit came. And so there's a, there seems to me that that's one of the greatest dangers that I hear in evangelical preaching is sermonizing, slapping ideas haphazardly onto a text, maybe sometimes more convincingly than others, but not letting those ideas flow, flow out of the text so persuasively that, you know, as your finger is on the text and you're working through it, the people in the pew are like, yes, I see that. And, and the reality of that comes home to them. Such, not so that they're like, wow, I never had seen that. And I don't know that I see that now. You know, but, but if, pastor sa- if pastor says that, you know, what does that do? That creates, that creates either a sense where the people are like, why should I study the Bible? Because I can't see what it says, you know, or sort of a despondency, sort of a, it, it, creates, a, it, it creates a dependent 
And it creates a culture. Someone asked me last night, we were talking about hermeneutics. They're like, how do you get the people in the pew to learn proper hermeneutics? I said, most of the average people in the pew are going to learn hermeneutics when they catch it. It's going to be contagious because the pastor faithfully teaches the Word of God for years. And so they develop the, that intuitive sense. It's like having my two-year-old watch us use our phones. It's amazing. She can grab my phone and you know start calling people and find things on it and stuff because she just watches us and and she just imitates us and that's how the people in the pew are where they're they watch the pastor watch him carefully exegete the scriptures over months and months and they develop that intuitive whether they can explain it or not they become interpreters they become discerning interpreters so when they hear false teaching they're like that's not what that says that's you know that in or, or yeah that's right they they develop that and i think it can help as well I didn't say this last night, but thinking about it now, it can help as well to just be deliberate as we as we work through Scripture to teach interpretation by explaining what we're doing. Saying some people would say this is that the case? Why not? You know, so we so people learn the method not not in a formal way, but but contagiously. Another example of this kind of sermonizing idea you find it all over the place is uh, uh, my wife and I when we were starting to have uh, uh, children. Uh, we listened to these audio tapes. This was back, I guess, uh, in the move shift from audio to CD culture. But we listened to audio tapes on uh, parenting. And the person who was speaking in this tapes, it's a very famous course, probably some of you have heard it. Um, they said, well, you know, you need to keep put your children, babies, in a crib. Don't have them in the bed with you. I'm all about that. That's fine. I, want to sh- I don't want to share my bed with anyone but my wife. I don't want my children sleeping in my bed. But the, but the point, the, but to make this point, he appealed to Scripture. And he said, you know, like we see in Luke chapter 2, says that she, G- Jesus, after he was born, she gave birth to her firstborn. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger <laughs> because there was no room for them in the end. So you see that Jesus, just as Mary placed Jesus in the in the manger, so you should place your children in cribs. That was the baby wise, growing kids God's way, all that stuff. You're familiar with that. And 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 the question is, okay, now think about this. Here, here's 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 what we're seeking to answer this question. I, Luke, right, the inspired author of Scripture, have told you this story about Jesus being placed in a manger. Why? Because why? Why have I told you to do this? What is my purpose? What is my intent? So that you'll put your children in cribs? So that you'll know that you shouldn't let children sleep in the bed with you? Of course not. The reason, you, you say, well, Luke is very concerned for the poor and the outcast and the widow. He's showing how Jesus came in humble origins. He's The king of kings is placed in an animal trough. You know, here, here, God has humbled himself. The son of God has become... A humble baby in an animal trough. That's the, it's, you know, and I've always wanted to be able to talk to the guy who, 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 who did those tapes and say, well, brother, what about Luke chapter 11, verse 7, where Jesus is telling a parable. He says, uh, in the middle of the parable, then the one inside, this is the, um, the teaching on prayer, and someone comes to you at midnight and asks for loaves of bread. The one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. You know, <laughs> and then you say, well, here, Jesus himself, the red letters, you know, and he talks about the children being in bed with him. 
So maybe Mary, you know, we shouldn't follow Mary, right? That's Roman Catholic. Maybe Jesus, we should follow Jesus. <laughs> Jesus says children are in bed with you. Well, the reality is that's just a, that's, that's just a cult. Jesus, that was probably the more normal way for people to sleep with their kids at that time in tiny houses. All I mean, if you've ever been in a third world setting, people just pile together in a small hut and they all just sleep together. And it's not. It's not saying that's good or it's just that was that was the reality. And so it's not trying to teach. That's what we're supposed to do. That's one of the challenges of narrative, too, isn't it? One of the challenges of narrative is saying what what is being taught and what is just being reported? What's the difference between prescription and description? And uh, there's many things in Scripture that are described that are not prescribed. And and because roughly 60 percent of the Bible is narrative. You know, it's the reporting, this happened, this happened, this happened. And the author doesn't always step out and say, and that was bad, or and that was good. And so we have to read the whole work and read it discerningly and read, look for the undercurrents and look for authorial asides to understand, is he intending me to copy that, or is he just reporting that, or is he saying that's good, or is that's bad? And that's where there's, um, that's where there's, uh, um, where it takes real discernment to, um, and, and, and care. And that's where we, you don't have time to go through all of it. But for example, again, just since you have the book already, I don't feel like I'm selfishly like, buy my book or whatever. But like the, the chapter on historical narrative, noting, you know, when I approach narrative, these are things to look for to understand it, what is the author really intending to teach in this passage. Okay. Um, I'm going to pause right there for a second and see if anyone has any questions. If you don't, it's fine. Just pause there for a second. Was okay. Okay, the um, we talked we talked about um, last night. I don't. How many of you were there last night? Okay, just a little less than half of you. Okay, um, we talked about last night. I don't want to. I don't want to be repetitive on this, but I, maybe it's it's very it's necessary for me to to briefly state our goal here of interpretation. The goal of interpretation, I think, is to to state uh, the inspired author's conscious meaning. The inspired author's conscious meaning. And modern day implications. Okay? So, uh, and we distinguish those. The state the inspired author's conscious meaning and modern-day implications. And also, we always have an eye with this to the fundamental gospel realities of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of humanity, and the sufficiency of Christ that run throughout all of Scripture as the whole, as the total story. So we have this sort of always on the side as we're, ima- as we're applying this to regular life. But we're seeking the inspired author's conscious meaning and, and modern-day implications. And so the example we chose last night, again, I don't want to take too long on it, because, but because about half of you were not there, we looked at Ephesians 5.18, which is where Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And we talked about in that original context, Paul is writing to people in Ephesus, and he's telling them not to take into their body substance called wine, which is part alcohol, and so be, be drunk, so lose control of their body that they would do shameful or sinful things. And... And that's, that's that, that cuts the channel. 
right? The channel of that original meaning. Paul writing to... We, before, before we can faithfully feel like we can apply that text, we have to understand that original meaning. Paul writing to the Ephesians. Don't take this substance into your body. And then we have to realize there are all kinds of implications that legitimately flow within that. And we illustrate that speaking about what if Paul visited the Ephesians and they were all drunk with beer? And he would, would he say, and, and, and he's like, why are you drunk? Oh, you, we haven't touched wine since we got your letter. We're all drunk on beer. Would he be like, oh, that's okay? Or would he be like, ah, I should have been more specific. Don't get drunk with wine or beer or whatever. And there's all kinds of, in other words, the, the, any flowing within this channel, any legitimate application of that, any substance you take into your body that causes you such to lose control of your, your inhibitions that you do sinful or foolish or shameful things, then you, you shouldn't do that, right? Whether it's vodka or marijuana or what, whatever that Paul did, couldn't have imagined. Those are legitimate implications that flow within that channel of meaning. And, 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 and I, 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 a couple of word pictures I gave for that is, is you, to seek that author's conscious meaning like you, like you ride a bull, right? You, you get on, whenever I begin preaching a text, I often have these preconceptions. Oh, I think this text is going to be about this. Oh, I think the text, I've read it, you know, 10 times. I think the text is going to be about that. But when I, if, when I start really carefully meditating on it, praying on it, working through it, reading commentaries, talking with others about it, I often my views begin to shift because I'm like, because, because I'm seeking this. I'm seeking this under God's spirit, diligently applying myself and seeking God's help to see and correct my misunderstanding. And there comes a point where I have to decide, I've done all this work and I think it would preach well this way. And I have these examples already. I have these illustrations. And, and I thought people needed to hear this, but the text really says more this. And there's a question of whether I'm going to be faithful. And I, I think it's a question of riding the bull. You get on the bull, the bull's the text. You don't know where the bull's going to go. It's going to buck. It's going to take you all over the place, right? Rodeo. And, and, and that's your job as a preacher is to hang on. And wherever it takes you, you don't get off. And the, the opposite of that is if you're, if, you're in a, uh, if you're in the rodeo ring and you're not on a bull, you're a clown, right? And that's, that's the preacher who's gotten off the text and is running around. That's, a, that's a, clownish, a clownish type thing to do, I think. Another example is a river. The, the text is a river. We jump into it and we just go where the flow takes us. We don't fight against it. We go, we go with the meaning. So um, I, I, when I first started working on that text that I preached last night, Hebrews 3... I thought, I, I was told, you know, I, I, I chose a text from Hebrews 1 to 4. I thought, well, this will be a good warning passage and, you know, a warning to... But then I, 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 that first word, so or thus, I had to... I was like, this is... I can't do this without looking back. This is about perseverance. This is... And it took time, but it finally, it just... It's like it broke in its pieces. And then I was like, I'm either going to preach it as it is or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come with my preconceived notions. I'm going to sermonize. Um, and I see this among students. I had a student last semester who came up to me, and, and I, I almost couldn't believe it. He said, I've got Easter's coming up. I have my title. And he told me this great title. He's like, I just got to find my text. And I was like, this is almost comical. I can't imagine you're really saying this to me, you know? Like, you've already decided what you're going to say and what your sermon title is, and now you have to find a text for it? Um, it was shocking. You know, but then I've also had the good good experiences of like uh, teaching a hermeneutics class, and there was a, a a brother on the front row, and he said, "You're ruining my preaching," uh, and he meant it in a good way. He meant I can't just go in and say the stuff I've been saying anymore. Um, it was a compliment to me. I really appreciated it. You know, um, that he said, "I have to. I haven't been preaching what the text says," 
and this is going to be a lot more work, but I'm called to faithfulness uh, as I do this. Another danger that you sometimes will see in popular preaching and teaching is, is, is uh, background uh, mania. And uh, this is where there's an over-fascination with background, with cultural or historical or archaeological issues. And, you know, people pay the pastor. You guys, most of you are paid. And, and, and there can be a temptation when you read a lot of stuff, you learn a lot of stuff, to sort of demonstrate that. You're like, you know, I need, I've learned some neat new things about history and culture and archaeology. And to, to, to allow the explanation of some of those to, to hijack really the, the author's conscious meaning and the, the implications that flow from that. Really, So it becomes more of a, a slideshow of the Holy Land or rather than a real, real application of that to the human heart. Example of this, I had a, a former student call me. Uh, who is also a friend of mine. He said, hey, I'm preaching uh, this text. I need to know if I'm on, on right or not. And it was Mark 3, verses 13 through 19. And he, I, I didn't include his, his name in, in, in the example, in the book I wrote about this. So I wonder if he's going to read it and be like, that was me. But uh, no, we won't shame him. But Jesus uh, called the the, the twelve apostles. Is it called the twelve to himself? And he appointed them, designating them apostles, and names the names the twelve apostles. And he said, "I read in a book about how all Jewish uh, boys were trained to be rabbis, and it, and 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 the ones that that succeeded became rabbis. But those that didn't, they were sort of, you know, every Jewish boy had this opportunity. But those that failed." They, uh, you know, went on and did other trades. And so basically Jesus calling these fishermen and other people, he's calling failures. And so I'm going to preach this as like Jesus calls and uses failures. Is, is this on, on track? And I said, well, you know, there are places in Scripture that clearly speak of Jesus choosing the lowly and rejected people of the world. There are places that speak about that. I said, but in this passage that you're reading here, you know, where, where, where did you read the background? You're, you're taking a lot, you know, this doesn't say that in the book of Mark. You know, you're bringing a lot of background into this, uh, Jewish background, rabbis, whatever. Where did you read about this? So he tells me, I said, have you read that in any other book or commentary? No. That should give you pause first off. Where your, one, your source for this is one source. Right? Every, you know, maybe you read it and you're like, that's so cool. Well, there's maybe a reason that you've never read it anywhere else, right? It's so original and so unsubstantiated. So, so I, I said, you know, there, there may be some reality to what the author is saying there. I, I, I've never heard, I, I think he's way overstating it. It's certainly not what Mark is emphasizing. And think about Mark's writing to Roman audience. He explains Jewish customs when they don't understand them. You know, this was this means this, and this Aramaic phrase means this. This was what the Jews did when they washed pots and kettles and whatever. He, you know, if he had wanted if he had wanted the Gentile audience to understand some underlying deep Jewish custom that was essential, he would have explained it. He didn't do that. So, so in other words, what what is the text that we're looking at here in Mark three about? It's about Jesus effective call about his demand for radical discipleship about his delegated authority right that's what then let's let's preach and teach those things like like what does the text actually say what i mark right have told you this story about jesus choosing his 12 apostles because right to to show you how he's reconstituting uh the renewed israel around himself how his 
his demands for radical discipleship, how he's training and preparing his followers. You know, various things we could answer, but I don't think it's about, uh, you know, this is talking about all these guys are failures. And so God chooses failures. Well, God does choose and use failures, but that, that, that's, not, that's not what the text is about. And again, I think it can be really tempting to desire to give something fresh to a congregation, to tell them something they've never heard, especially we read, we're, we're going to read a lot of things if we're preparing well that we can never convey in a sermon. And so I think, but, but the point is, in that case, I would say to that student, your time is much better spent meditatively and prayerfully thinking how to apply the meaning and exhort and encourage and illustrate that meaning to your, to your congregation rather than come up with some creative, historical, cultural background Thing. And, and unfortunately, um, there, are, there are not a few resources out there, some of them that have sold half a million copies, that, that are really, they use the biblical text like a springboard. You're reading, and then they spring off to talk about all this cultural background stuff, which is kind of interesting, but it doesn't really, doesn't really focus on the meaning of the text. It's like, well, that's interesting, but that's not really helping me understand why the inspired author is teaching this to, to the recipients of that letter. Okay? Of course, there's also, while we're talking about background issues, there's also the danger of neglecting background issues. So we want to we note that as well, that one can also um, neglect historical and background issues, which are essential to proper interpretation. And I want to look at just, uh, just one or two of those to, to note that I'm not denying that those are essential. In 1 Timothy 2, um, background or non-background is Fundamental to understanding the meaning of the text. First Timothy two eleven and following, a very debated text. First Timothy two eleven and following, uh, Paul says, "A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent." Uh, and and how do um, how do evangelical feminists explain this text? Do you know? You guys familiar with that? What do they do? They say, yeah, we believe that. So it was only in that place, that particular place. Yeah, they say, they say uh, well, don't you know that Paul was writing to Ephesus, and there were a lot, it's a problem, there were not many educated women at the time, and so it's a, a temporary accommodation to the cultural historical situation. That's exactly what he's saying. So they appeal to cultural historical backgrounds, say, that doesn't apply today because of the cultural historical Conditions. Paul wouldn't have said that if, if women were as educated and in the status of society they have now. But then, that, then, you, then that's, where, that's where this cultural historical background issue becomes very key. Is that really the case or is it not? And, and I, I think that the text pushes back against that because if you read it, Paul doesn't say, I don't permit a woman to teach because right now... Women aren't properly educated, but we can look forward to the day when that, that's going to happen. And he says, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So he appeals, and there's debates about the nuances of what that means, but it's quite clear he's appealing to the created order. He's like, the created order from the beginning, prior to the fall even. Adam was made first, then Eve. That there's something about that to be mirrored in the, in, the, in the organization of the church. And so that seems to be supra-temporal or supra-cultural. Um, so we have to consider those historical and background issues. Another, another issue, I thought about this last night when Bo got up to speak. Uh, in uh, 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 6, the issue of head coverings, right? <laughs> I got some up there with his hat on. Where is he? Is he here? No? 
And I thought, yeah, you know, this would be interesting as an interpretive question. Doesn't the Bible say that a man's not to cover his head? You know, don't, don't worry, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not really uh, asserting there was anything wrong with that. But why, why is it not wrong? Because it says that, right? 1 Corinthians 3, following says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she shouldn't have her hair cut off. It's disgrace, so on. And uh, usually men are not that concerned about this passage because they never cover their head anyway. But I do have a number of, usually each semester when we're teaching through this, several women will be like, what, help me understand that, right? You know, all my life I've seen that in text and I, I don't know, you know, it doesn't seem like I need to do that, but it says I should, so help me understand that. And uh, we talk about, in, in my book, I go in more detail, there's a chapter about how do I know which commands apply unchanged and how, how are some that are changed. And, and one, one, one question we ask is, would a literal application of this command achieve the author's intended purpose? And so you look at Paul, his intended purpose is that the, the way that the men and women are attiring themselves and interacting would be respectful and maintain gender distinctions and maintain um, the, the husband's authority, the sign of authority in the home. And, and uh, so proper gender distinctions and proper relations between the sexes in the home and in the church. And so we have to ask ourselves, would a woman today wearing a head covering show honor and respect to her husband as, as the head of the home and, and show proper respect of gender distinctions. And most of us, I think we'd have to admit, if we saw a woman walk in the church with a head covering, we would wonder, is she Amish? You know, or she got a hang up or something? What's, what's up with the head thing going on? Like we wouldn't think, finally a woman who honors her husband, right? Finally a woman who submits to her husband is coming into the church. Right? We, we would see that. So we, we see that head covering because the literal application of that command across times and cultures doesn't really accomplish what clearly is Paul's purpose. We see a distinction, I think, between uh, the cultural expression of that. I'm going to come to your question in a second. So a uh, next question is, what in our culture would convey um, that same respect and same distinction among genders? And, and I, I, I give the example in the southeastern United States, a couple of things that do that. I realize these are not super cultural. In other words, they don't apply the same in China and Japan and Russia or wherever. But one of them is wearing a ring, right? If I don't wear a ring, if my wife doesn't wear a ring, you know, if my wife suddenly decides I'm not going to wear my wedding ring, I'm going to be like, what? <laughs> um, no, you, uh, we, uh, we wear our wedding rings, right? So we need to show other people we're married, you know? Or if she says, I've decided I'm going to go back to my maiden name, I'd be like, what? Right? We, we realize that at least in the southeastern United States, to take a husband's last name is a sign that, I'm coming into your home. I, I respect you. You're my husband. We're one. We're one. One in this together. So, what what things what things express and and keep those distinctions, which Paul, which Paul, in Paul's culture, were done with the the head covering. Jason, um, I agree with your your interpretation. And Go ahead. Actually, said that, um, but I come from a Holderman Mennonite background where they, where the women do wear hair yeah. coverings. I had this conversation with uh, with pastors there. They're going to appeal to what we just did in Timothy, and they're going to say, well, if you look at the context of that, Paul both both uh, goes back to creation, talking about the man being created first, and he goes back to the natural world. Yeah, well, I would say that we're, we are agreeing that the, the, the command is 
is timeless. I mean, we're not saying don't do this, right? We're, we're agreeing. We want to submit to the meaning of that. But we're, we're recognizing that at least, in, uh, at least in the language of head covering, there seems to be a cultural manifestation of a timeless principle. So the principle is timeless. Uh, gender distinctions, husband, head of the home, gender distinctions in the church, timeless. But the way that ex- expressed, I think, is, is culturally conditioned. I mean, for example, in China, a woman never takes her husband's last name. It's just not, they, they just, they always keep the name they were born with. And I don't know that um, in the, you know, in the Mennonite tradition, you know, if someone's in that and they feel, they feel that they're obeying, you know, this is the kind of the issue of Romans 14, maybe, if each one should be convinced in his own mind. You know, some people think one day is, is special and others think all is alike. If, if I, I'm, I'm, Firmly convinced that my wife not wearing a head covering is in no way disobeying scripture, you know. But if someone reads that and they're unable, they're like, I feel convicted. If I don't do this, I'm not honoring my husband. Then I would never discourage someone. I'd be like, hey, that's fine. You wear that. That's cool. You know, if I don't think that you're in any way, you know, I feel that you're applying a first century cultural practice that's no longer uh, incumbent upon us. But if you if you if that is an expression for you, similar to First Corinthians eight through ten, Paul's like eating meat offered to idols, eating meat offered to idols. Who cares, right? But if someone associates that with idolatry and they partake of it, they sin. So even though the thing in and of itself is not sinful, if they're going against their conscience, they're sinning. So even though I'd say wearing some doily on your head, wearing no doily on your head, who cares? You know, it doesn't matter. But if they associate that with disrespect and dishonoring scripture, they're going against their conscience. And so they're really sinning against their conscience. I, don't, I, I, I can see your, your, your mind is turning still. You have a follow-up? No, no, no. I'm just trying to... I'm, I'm coming, going back to the first Timothy one. And yeah. How we do that. And I'm just looking for loopholes. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, think about first Timothy. I don't want a loophole. Yeah, no, no. But, but think about first Timothy. What cultural veneer, what cultural expression can be taken off of that? There, I don't think there is one, but I've heard people say, well, you know, that's just a cultural thing. You know, uh, women had a different place in society at that point. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, having a woman be a pastor today, yeah. not a big deal. For me, it is. Yeah. But, uh, but, um, yeah, and I think, I think the, you know, the appeal to creation is hard to get around. And it, and it appeals, not only, sometimes people say, well, that's, you know, male headship is post-fall. You know, it's, it's because of the fallen world. Say, so, but the appeal is to Adam was created first and then Eve. So not only does it cite the deception of the woman, which is the fall, but it cites the created order, you know. But he does that in First Corinthians 11 as well. And again, we're, I'm not denying, you know, we're not, we're not excusing like saying, well, that, that whole practice, you know, of husbands and wives, that, that's all, you know. We, we're, but, but the expression of the head covering, I think, I think is. Um, so, yeah. So I, I would again. I would. I, I think part of part of the question is would is is just being able to ask is does the literal ap, literal application. In other words, was Paul really concerned? Was he most concerned that they place a piece of cloth on their head? If you place a piece of cloth on your head, everything's okay. His concern was the what that expressed, which was submission and, and gender distinctions. One question that I found helpful in discussions like that is uh, with, with, with um, 
for example, on, on the issue. You can go back and forth on the on passages like First Timothy two. No, I don't think it's this. Yes, I don't. You know, yes, it is. And I, I once spent some time with a guy from a different tradition where he's more more liberal, evangelical, more allowing for women pastors. And I asked him, I was like, well, let me just ask you, how would it have to be written to convince you that it was supercultural? How could Paul have phrased it? Like, what qualification could he have made? How could he have phrased it? And the guy who was honest, he's like, there's no way he could phrase it. God doesn't limit that. I'm like, well, that's why you're reaching this conclusion. Your presupposition is your conclusion. God cannot limit the role of pastor. Therefore, there is no way. I mean, I could, I, to be, I mean, if we're intellectually honest, we say, well, I can think of some ways he could word it so that I could be convinced that that is just cultural, you know? Say, you know, if he explicitly said, um, you know, we look forward to the day when these women will be pastored, you know, and then we say, well, that's what he says. But, 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 but is, what's, our, what's our ultimate authority? Our sense of what it should be? And I, I, I shared last night, I recently got an email from a, I haven't responded to it yet. I'm kind of just letting it sit there for a few days. Uh, to a, someone about homosexuality, where they read my book and they're real mad because I say that homosexuality is, is something that's consistently in the Old and New Testament. Homosexual behavior is, is consistently condemned in Scripture. And I'm not mean about it or hateful or anything. I just say, you know, here's an example of a, of a timeless moral principle. And the person got really mad about it. And uh, she emailed me. She said, let me explain it to you like you're two. Okay, so she was very mad and uh, insulting and all this. I'm not finding her email right now. But um, the, uh, um, her argument was, oh, the only thing that was wrong with homosexuality is it was tied up with pagan uh, idolatrous religion practices. There's nothing wrong in and of itself. It's because people used it to worship um, pagan gods. And, of course, then you, you say... That's it's very similar to the uh, the um, you know you're you're reading all this historical cultural background which is not in the text into it you know saying well it it commands don't you know don't engage in this uh, uh, type of sex but it does that just because it was associated with idolatry but you're like well that's not what that text says and in fact in this passage where it lists all these sins it lists you know, thievery and lying and you know all these uh, it just seems to be a list of sins without any respect for cultural background. So I'm, I'm just kind of sitting on it and thinking about how to respond to, to her email in a way that might, might be helpful. So, okay, those are a good question. Anyone else? Sometimes when one person asks a question, then people who've been sitting there will finally ask something. Someone want to say something? Would you repeat that question as you asked it? How would it have to be written? Yeah, how would it have to be written to convince you, um, you know, what, of whatever it is? So if someone says, well, I don't, I don't believe that, you know, that that First Timothy two says that women can't be pastors. How would Paul have to have written that to convince you that he was saying that that women cannot be pastors? Like, what? what how would it have to be phrased? What qualifications would he have to make? And you can do that for a lot of for a lot of different issues. How would that have to be phrased to convince you that that Paul really does think that that homosexual behavior is wrong? That it's not just homosexual, uncommitted homosexual behavior or homosexual behavior associated with pagan religions, that it's actually the act of homosexual behavior that's, uh, 
the, how would it have to be written? And, and, and I think that if the person might not really like the question, they might not respond, but it pushes back to them. It pushes them to their presupposition. Like, what are you beginning with? And, 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 uh, and w- why are you really um, strongly, you know, strongly holding to your conclusion there? Um, let's maybe do a couple more and then we'll take a little break. Maybe take a little bathroom break. Um, <clears throat> parallel passage mania. Parallel passage mania. I think sometimes you see this in commentaries where people, they suddenly see all these allusions to other passages that no one has ever seen before and they try to bring them together and say, you know, here, here, and they make a big point of it. Uh, I, I recently got Bob Gundry's whole commentary of the Bible, and just an example of this from that is he's in Mark 14, which I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, on a paper on that right now, so I'm kind of interested to see what people do with Mark 14. And the story of um, Mark 14, 51 and following, a young man, right, this is where Jesus is arrested, a young man wearing nothing but a lemon, linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And uh, um, and so Gundry he says, well, you know, clearly this is a um, this is an anticipation of the resurrection. <laughs> and uh, he's like, I'm like, really? He's like, look, the linen garment is reminds us of the linen garment of Jesus and the tomb that was folded, and the young man reminds us of the the angel who's described as he, you know, young man in the tomb. And I'm like, I have never seen that my whole life, right? And, 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 and again, it, I, I, you know, he just draws a couple, look, linen and linen, and a man here and a man here, and look, this is what it is. And, and I think that, again, just to harp this, I, Mark, right, am telling you this story about a man fleeing naked because... <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he was really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I heard someone do three-point silly sermon on this once. Uh, uh, he said, you know, of course, this is the, the Mark that we know from the book of Acts. John Mark and John Mark's mother's home and, you know, where Peter came. And there was Rhoda, the servant girl and all that. And he, he did three points. He's like, first, Mark was glad that streetlights had not been invented yet. Yeah, and he's like, secondly, Mark was glad that when he got home, Rhoda didn't open the door. And, you know, he went through silly things. And, and people have suggested, you know, that this is an allusion to, to Mark's authorship. Of course, one of the major arguments against that is um, no one in the early church saw that. Everyone in the early church, the early church testimony is unanimous that Mark was not a follower of Jesus. Right? That was, that's kind of the shocking thing about the Gospel of Mark is it. It's not written by a follower of Jesus. It's written by someone who followed Peter. The early church is unanimous that Mark is writing down uh, the testimony of the eyewitness Peter, not himself, because he never was personally an eyewitness. He didn't follow Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. So that would be really odd for for him, you know, because the early church certainly would have seized upon this and seen that as further putting Mark even closer to to Jesus than, than he was. So why is he telling this? And again, we want to be we want to be cautious uh, because this is part of the challenge of narrative, isn't it? Mark doesn't step out and be like, "Now you want to know why I just told you that? This is why." Like there are no footnotes. You know, this is the meaning of that text. But I think this is again the value of 
you know, and you can look in more detail at, at the, the, the chapter in the book on interpreting historical narrative. But when you come to historical narrative, you have to read the whole book, okay? The, Mark expected, at least by chapter 14, that we'd read all the previous stuff, right? He didn't expect us to be flying in on Sunday morning and being like, whoosh, boom, you know, parachute in on this text without considering all that he's written before. And um, he also expects us to, as we've read through the book, to pay attention to things that he's repeated, repetition, to pay attention to his authorial comments and asides. He's made authorial comments throughout the text, letting us know certain things. And one thing that we find over and over again in the book of Mark that's repeated and that's emphasized is the failure of the disciples. If you re- Everyone recognizes this if you read any commentary on Mark. The disciples constantly fail. <laughs> like, you know, and they're at, Jesus is explaining, I'm going to go, I'm going to die. And they're like, can we sit at your right and left hand? <laughs> you know, like, it's just constant, like the whole gospel. <laughs> they just miss everything. And in fact, the gospel ends, everyone, the best, the best manuscripts of Mark end at 1680. You can look at, we have a copy of, a facsimile copy of Codex Vaticanus at the seminary. You can turn, there's 16, it ends right there at 16.8, and there's plenty of space. They could have written more stuff. Um, the the 16.9 and following was someone's later summary that's been appended to Mark. Almost all, all scholars, all, 98% of scholars, 99% of scholars, I think, would, would agree with that, that 16.9 and following is not what Mark wrote. That's just a later summary that's been added in. And so if you really look at where the gospel ends, how does it end? The women are told, go tell his disciples about the resurrection. They went away fearful, telling no one. <laughs> you know, and so the gospel ends like that. I mean, it's striking. Even though we know Jesus was raised and we know that we're hearing the gospel and that it did go forth. One of Mark's main themes is the triumph of the gospel in spite and through human failure. Right. It's just. That's it. And so when we see that prominent theme all throughout the gospel, and then this is, again, where historical and cultural background is a little bit helpful. And I've done, I'm going to writing a paper on this for ETS. So maybe I'll send it to John, and if y'all want, y'all can read it eventually. But it is interesting. You know, to us, it seems extremely strange to have someone grab you and all your clothes fall off, right? I've never had that happen. Uh, however, uh, it says, you know, grab his garment, it falls off. However, the kind of loose-fitting, pre-elastic, sort of tunic-type garments, there are other examples from this time period of this happening. Fights going on, someone pulls someone's garment off. You know, it's like boom, boom. To us, it's strange, but it, it shows. And, and nakedness uh, it, nakedness in, in this time, in, in Jewish and in Greco-Roman culture, well, not, not as much Greco-Roman in, in, the, in, in terms of uh, competitions, athletics, and so on, but in, in if not in athletics, in terms of Christian Greco-Roman culture, was was very shameful. It was a naked. If you, I mean, if you look in the Old Testament, there are a few references to people fleeing naked. It's just a sign of utter defeat and shame to run away naked. And I mean, you think about even David when he's dancing before the Lord with his linen ephod. His um, Saul's daughter Michal, she's she's like you, base. You disrobed yourself before the people of Israel. Like she sees him dancing in such you know, barely covered up is just a shameful, disgraceful thing. And so when we see, in other words, it seems to me at this high point where Jesus is, is, is arrested, this is just another one of those little snapshots. It's not the women fleeing naked, utter, uh, telling no one. It's not the disciples asking horrible questions or not believing or being afraid. 
Here, here it's just, it happens, it doesn't tell us who it is, but it's like a snapshot. You want to see the disciples in the Jesus moment of greatest need? Naked, running away. Utter failure, utter defeat, utter abandonment. And it, again, it just highlights, it, it, it is a foil, a contrast to Christ and the certainty of his triumph and it, as compared with, with human, um, human behavior and human reliance. Um, we're talking about parallel mania. And another example of this would be in, um, uh, I recently in a doctoral seminar we're doing, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're, we just did Mark chapter 5. Um, the, the Gadarene demoniac and uh, or Gerasene demoniac, depending on what you think the the text says, and how the you know that Jesus cast the legion into the pigs and they all run into the lake. And uh, uh, again, um, some people have claimed, just in terms of parallel mania, they say, oh well, this is obviously referring to Isaiah sixty five. I doubt any of us have ever thought about Isaiah 65 when we've read that. But it just so happens it has a few of the same words. It has the word mountain. It talks about swine flesh. It uses a different word for pigs and all this. But there's some parallel. And so someone will try to jump into that and then make it into this, you know, this is all just kind of a midrashic interpretation. And, and yeah, you just have to ask in terms of, you know, evaluate each one of these on its own. Number one, is it are the exact same words used? Number two, does the author give any indication that he's really t- intending to appeal to that? Is there some, something on the surface or is it, is it subtle? You know, there's all kinds of questions to, to, to question. How many people see this? If there's only one person, you know, if, if you're the only person who has this interpretation, it's almost certainly wrong, you know, we can say. And so um, just, just being critical and, and, and really asking, is it helpful even to go to this other text and show parallels does it really expound the author's meaning of the text? So in Mark chapter 5, it's quite clear that Mark's main point is Jesus is all-powerful over the demonic realm. That's his point. Jesus is the, the powerful Son of God who, with a word, cast out a legion of demons. Seeing allusions to 65 seems to me to stray quite far from, from the surface meaning of the text that Mark is doing there. Okay, why don't we take any... We'll, we'll, we'll pick up with factual regurgitation in a second, but does anyone have any... Um, any other questions or thoughts I want to ask before we go into that? Before we take a little break, bathroom break? Yeah, John. Uh, could you uh, could you comment on uh, parallel passages that are actually a little closer in meaning? Because uh, I've seen a, a lot of tendency, in, especially in the synoptics, to do it, it's what I think is an error: is collapsing meaning of yeah. a specific yeah. author in light of easier interpretations or more common interpretations, or maybe even more uh, easier spiritual interpretations. So, and the one I'm thinking of is uh, Luke's sermon. Uh, Luke's recording of the sermon and Matthew's recording. Yeah. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Yeah. 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 Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah. Luke has a whole theme running yeah. through his gospel. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so if you, if you teach that text yeah. without spending very much time really dealing with Luke on his own yeah. terms, yeah. you just collapse blessed are the poor. Yeah. And you, I would say spiritualize and say blessed yeah. are the poor. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, um, and I'm going to restate it just for the uh, for the for the um, recording. The, um, the question is: In preaching through the Gospels, uh, you have parallel text, uh, uh, texts that have sometimes more closely parallel than others, 
how legitimate is it to 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 preach across the the gospels rather than in the individual gospel you know or should we, should we, in other words how, how should we stay within luke or should we jump outside of luke to parallels or you know or some of both uh you know what 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 is most inclined i'm most inclined to favor um preaching within that text because luke wrote luke as a gospel and acts as a as a story of early church history as a unified whole and he gave us all kinds of indications that within that why he's te- why he's emphasizing certain things now even as i'm doing that um i i might very well find it helpful to mention something outside and sometimes that can be apologetic to avoid criticism or sometimes it could be illustrative you know saying you know in fact in in first century judaism poverty was often associated with um with um having a humble dependent attitude that resulted in in uh, a receptivity to god you say that's pretty true today too isn't it have you have you ever noticed you know many rich people who are really looking for the Lord's help, or but you know any someone who's who's lost everything, who's down, who's has who's addicted to drugs. Maybe they they finally see their need for God, and so so say so to say you know it can be a false contrast. People say, well, Matthew's interested in spiritual, and and Luke's just interested in the physical. When we see him translated poor in spirit, say they're really not in contrast to each other. So you might make some aside like that, but I think you want to. Focus on on Luke's meaning. Also, there can be sometimes kind of a, a, an apologetic argument. For example, in the beginning of Acts, Luke describes Judas as, as falling headlong and his 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 guts bursting open. And Matthew, at the end of Matthew, describes Judas as being hanged, hanging himself. So, if you're preaching the text of of Acts in, in that section, you have to decide. I think I would really want to stay. I wouldn't want to make it into. That's one of my other. Things you don't want to do, right? It's at the top of the next page. You don't want to become Mr. Inerrancy, right? So your sermon is just reconciling the text. You're like, I like to hear pastor because he can tell me why it's not really a mistake, you know? Like that's, that's, that's how is that preaching the meaning and incur- challenging people to believe and repent? That's just an intellectual exercise. That's not, or, you know, and that can be whether you're Mr. Inerrancy or Mr. Creationism or Mr. End Times or Mr. Apologetics. There are all kinds of little misters you can be that really are not faithfully conveying uh, that the, the teaching of the text. Um, I'll, I'll give an example of how I think it can be important to, to look at the specifics of, of the individual story. Let's look in, in Mark chapter, or pardon me, uh, Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. And uh, we see the story of the, the, the Canaanite woman. In, in verse 21 and following. And uh, this is a story that also occurs in, in go- the Gospel of Mark. But Mark calls her the Syrophoenician woman, right? And I think it's significant, though, that Matthew... Assume, you know, most New Testament scholars, you guys probably know this, most New Testament scholars believe that Mark wrote first and that, and that there were these other collection of documents and sources that's called Q. Q just is short for German word, Cavella, means source. So, like, there was Mark, and then there were these other sources, and that Matthew um, used Mark and Q, and that Luke 
used Mark and Q as sources. They were sources for... So, so Luke, if, if we're correct about that, then Matthew has taken Mark's story here and has changed the word Syrophoenician to Canaanite. So leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, Matthew 15, 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. And, and I think that's, again, showing preaching within the Gospels. You remember, Matthew is a gospel, a Jewish gospel, written to early Jewish Christians. And it's a gospel that begins with a, a genealogy to Abraham. But even within that genealogy to Abraham, we have hints of God's compassion for the nations. And we have the mention of a Canaanite, Tamar. And we have the mention of a Canaanite, Rahab. So here, beginning with the most Jewish of Gospels, with the most Jewish of genealogies, to, to David and to the Messiah, back to Abraham, we have the Canaanite Tamar, and we have the Canaanite Rahab. And we have the mention of Uriah the Hittite's wife. And, and you have these, and, and I think, in other words, that Matthew, in choosing the word Canaanite, and Jesus, even though he, he, he has verbal sparring with this woman, he answers her request. And he, he heals her daughter. So we see here the, the former enemies of Israel, the Canaanites, now receiving the blessings of the Messiah. You know, and that's a very intentional rephrasing for, for Matthew to bring that out. And so we would, we, would be, we would be missing it if we just sort of smooth over it. This woman's from a region over there. You know, make it a, No, no, there's, a, there's an intentional rewording of that to, to, to emphasize that point. Jason? Yeah. Spoke yeah. So should we be trying to figure out, okay, I want to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke because I want to yeah. figure out when Jesus said blessed is the poor in the spirit, yeah. what was his intended meaning? Yeah. Or should we look at it uh, in the sense that the Holy Spirit is using uh, Luke and Matthew yeah. for different purposes, taking the words of Jesus in one, he wants to emphasize uh, a spiritual brokenness, yeah. and another, he wants to emphasize uh, physical poverty. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, well, I think that we want to. We only have Jesus as reported to us by the inspired apostles, you know, by the inspired writers. So, in other words, we don't have video footage about Jesus that we're trying to figure out what he's doing. We have it as reported through the authoritative interpreters. So, we only have the voice of Jesus. I think it's accurately the voice of Jesus, but we only have the voice of Jesus as reported by Luke or as reported by Matthew. So, I'm seeking to hear Matthew, who's faithfully telling me, what Jesus said and what its meaning is, and I, I'm engaging that. So I, I, I and I don't. I, you're right. In a you know scholarship, if we get real technical about it, they they de- define it as you know we're going to use a German word here, Zitzen, the Zitzenleben, right? You have the first Zitzenleben, the second Zitzenleben, thirds, and they distinguish the historical period where Jesus spoke on the hillside versus the period where that was communicated orally, and then the period where that was written down by the inspired writers, right? And they'll, they'll, and, and they'll say, well, do, you don't have access to this apart from this. You can only see into that through this. So not, not to be overly, it's, I think it's overly unnecessarily technical or whatever, but the, yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't want to put those in contrast to each other, but I would say we can't seek video footage we don't have. It's a valid historical question. Like, in other words, in one place Jesus says, if I dri- in one of the Gospels, if I drive out uh, demons by the Spirit of God, then, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the other one, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And people who are into the 
synoptics in history say, well, did Jesus, you know, there's possibility, did Jesus say the Spirit of God in one place and the finger of God in the other? Or did he say the finger of God, more likely, and that's the NASB translation provided by one author, and the other one's saying, you know, that's kind of confusing, that, that metaphor. So for my audience, I'm going to provide the NIV translation of what Jesus meant by the Spirit of God. So they're, they're just two reportings of the same event, one with more of a word-for-word translation of the Aramaic, and the other one with more of a thought-for-thought, meaning-for-meaning translation. So long story short, I, I think it's, it's best for us to answer the question, I, Luke, am telling you a story about Jesus, the, the inspired author telling you this because I'm seeking what Luke is intending to convey. And he faithfully conveys who Jesus is and what he did. Go ahead, follow up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's possible. I mean, we don't we don't know for sure because um, I mean we weren't there. It's hypothetical. You know, whenever you have almost you have very similar passages like that, you 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 have to ask: Is this referring to the same event? And one of them has given us a much more abbreviated account. One of them has given us a fuller account. Jesus preached and taught for three years. Uh, one, you know, you can sit down and read through the Gospels out loud, and maybe if you did it in less than 24 hours, Jesus certainly had many similar teaching situations where there would have been much overlap, near overlap. So is it, is it, is it just that there were uh, you know, varying traditions from different historical incidents, or is this the same historical incident that's being, that something different is being emphasized faithfully, but being emphasized by the, by the writer? And we do know that, the again, sometimes faithful Christians, we come to these texts with certain assumptions which are not substantiated. And one assumption we have is just in our culture that it, it's going to be word-for-word video reporting, and it's going to be in chronological order. And it's just, it's... It's oftentimes the gospel writers will will faithfully summarize the meaning of Jesus, is what he what he said, but but maybe not. I mean, obviously Jesus spoke in Aramaic, so it's at least being translated, right? And one of the key places that people have trouble with that, I'm like, well, look at look at the temptation narrative. Um, you know, in Luke, it, the the order is bread, um, mountain, temple. In Matthew, it's bread, temple, mountain. You know, it. it there's an intentional rearrangement of the order for some theological purpose or for some literary purpose. You know, and if you start saying, well, there were six temptations, you know, and there was, you know, no, no, you know, there wasn't like two mountains and two temples, you know, that's ridiculous. Like the early, the early Christians recognized the Gospels were not chronological. That the first writings, you know, Papias says, Mark wrote down everything Peter said, but not in order. Christian, they, early Christians widely recognized the Gospels were not chronological. Anyone who reads them carefully says these can't be chronological because you have the exact same stories in different orders. And so we can't ask the Gospels to give us something that the, the, the inspired authors didn't intend to give. Um, and so, again, going back to Luke and Matthew, why, why do you think, why Luke? Why did he, let's say he, he's the one who rearranged it and he put the temple temptation last jesus standing on the pinnacle of the temple well it is interesting if you look through luke there's a real emphasis on the temple i mean jesus is brought to the temple as a 
as an infant to be dedicated. Simeon and Anna are there. And then you look in the book of Acts, the believers are gathering in the, still praying and gathering in the temple. There's something Luke is doing with the temple. And uh, as, as a symbol, as a, as a, as at least as a literary motif. And so he heightens that by placing it possibly as the last of the temptation narratives. At the same time, you can say, well, Matthew, there's a real emphasis on mountains in Matthew. Jesus giving the great commission on the mountain, you know. And, and so maybe it's not as pronounced as the temple in Luke, but maybe, maybe Matthew wants to put the, the mountain uh, top, uh, you know, looking over the kingdoms of the world in contrast to them going to all the kingdoms of the world at the end of Matthew 28. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. So it's a good question.